0: You are listening to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M, where she breaks down the nitty gritty basics of nursing concepts. Hello and welcome to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M. Today I'm going to try to break down endocarditis and explain the nitty gritty basics of what you need to know as a nurse or a nursing student in order to be <laughs> successful with caring for patients you might run into that have a diagnosis of endocarditis. And basically, just so that we're all on the same page, endocarditis is just the inflammation of the endocardium, which is the inside layer of the heart and over the heart valves as well. And people who get endocarditis, really any patient that has it, it can affect multiple aspects of the heart itself. The most common component or object of the heart that it affects are the valves. It infects the valves. The chordae tendini, and apologies if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but those are the strong fibrous connections between the valve leaflets and the papillary muscles, which basically keep the flaps of the valves in the ventricular space and it prevents it from flopping back into the atrial cavity. So it allows it to properly, those valves to properly close. Those can actually rupture and Patients who have endocarditis could potentially get some sort of intraventricular septum perforation. The risk factors for people that are going to get it is anyone who's had a prior history of endocarditis, they're at higher risk of developing it again. Patients who have prosthetic valves are at high risk of developing endocarditis. Anyone with an acquired valvular disease, um, people who have cardiac lesions have that risk. And then the most commonly associated risk factor for people developing endocarditis are individuals who have some sort of of history with IV drug use or some sort of substance use disorder. I guess in summary, infective endocarditis occurs most frequently in patients with abnormal, whether it's leaky or narrowed heart valves, anyone who's got an artificial heart valve, or in people who have had a pacemaker lead in the past. Any structural heart disease can actually predispose a person to developing infective endocarditis. And in the past, rheumatic fever was the main precursor to infective endocarditis. And again, that rheumatic fever was an inflammatory disease that could develop um, when strep throat or scarlet fever wasn't treated properly and patients didn't take all of their antibiotics. They were putting themselves at risk for the development of infective endocarditis from the strep throat. Now there are two types of endocarditis. One is infective endocarditis and that results from some sort of invasive procedure like maybe it was dental work or they had an implanted device like a pacemaker placed or they had a central line or you know they were um, have a substance use disorder and have IV drug use in their history and The bacteria or some sort of pathogen gets into the bloodstream and attaches to the valve and a thrombus forms and then they start to proliferate and this is how we develop infective endocarditis versus non-infective or non-IE, infective of endocarditis, which is when a sterile thrombus forms on the valve. And this is most often associated with some sort of trauma or hypercoagulability problem where a clot basically forms, a sterile thrombus on the inside, it wasn't the result of an exterior, you know, enemy, like a bacteria, and that thrombus that attaches itself to the valve becomes a breeding environment. And it's not pathologic because nothing is growing, but this, it is a site- of possible infective endocarditis. Now, with infective endocarditis, you can either have acute infective endocarditis or a subacute vision. Now, those patients that get acute infective endocarditis, often these are patients with really healthy heart valves, and that's because acute bacterial endocarditis is usually caused by a staphylococcus aureus bacteria, and that particular form of infective endocarditis compared to the other forms is more likely to affect normal heart valves. The subacute ba- Bacterial endocarditis is usually caused by streptococcal bacteria, not staphylococcus, which is frequently associated with the acute bacterial endocarditis. And with the subacute bacterial endocarditis, that normally forms and develops on damaged valves, like after a dental surgery involving infected gums or some sort of reproductive or urinary surgery or operations on the GI tract anything that would precipitate and induce bacteria into the body. Now, people that get an acute infective endocarditis have a high death rate, and that's because the symptoms come on very quickly. It's very sudden. It's very severe. We're talking a matter of days, and we need to get treatment started quickly compared to the subacute infective endocarditis version, which are people who have a pre-existing heart disease, problem and their symptoms are subtle it's a little bit of a slower onset we're talking maybe weeks to months and they can get identified and diagnosed and treated with the antibiotics in a timely manner all this to say what do these patients actually look like when they have infective endocarditis and here's where my pie analogy comes into play p for presentation these patients have fevers so they're going to be running a fever, especially if they've got bacteria as the culprit for the infective endocarditis, which has inflamed the inner lining of that heart. They're going to be fatigued. They will have cardiac murmurs. G. Y. Because their valves are not working properly. They often have anorexia, and this means that they just are not hungry at all. And as an as a result, they will have weight loss. They will have some sort of heart failure. And you can go back, and are, I'll do an episode on heart failure, and you can go and listen to that one. They're also going to have embolic complications from the vegetation fragments that are growing on their valves, causing, essentially causing the infective endocarditis. So because they've got these veg, that vegetation growth on the valves, um, those fragments can break away and travel through their arterial circulation and then they can develop petechiae which are the tiny red spots on the skin from the emboli breaking off and then they can also get these things called splinter hemorrhages in the nail beds and if you were to just take like brown <laughs> brown wood that was splinter like and just start sticking them under your nail beds that's essentially what it looks like physiologically um, on them because that's emboli that is basically lodging itself underneath the nail beds in the vasculature and it can't go anywhere. So it presents itself kind of as like a splint. We call it a splinter hemorrhage in that nail bed. They'll also have Osler's nodes, which are reddish, tender lesions on the pads of the fingers, hands, and the toes. They can also develop splenolomegaly, which is when your spleen gets really big. And that's the direct result of it increasing in size to try to help fight the infection of the vegetative growth in the heart. And then these patients can also develop clubbing of the fingers. And again, if you think about those, the vegetation that's growing on the valves of the heart and there's microemboli that are breaking away and it's clogging the vasculature in the distal fingertips, it's reducing the O2 carrying capacity. We also have heart failure as a component of this. And so you will start to see clubbing. Now, if you need a way to remember that, you can use the uh, acronym pathogens if you really need to, which is P is for petechiae, A is for anorexia, T is for tired and weak. H is for that high fever and heart failure. O is for the Osler's nodes. Um, The G is like for the fingernail changes, use the big G in fingernail. Uh, The E is for embolic events. N is for night sweats and new cardiac murmurs. And then the S is for splenolomegaly. So now as a nurse, if we think about the interventions, again, we just covered all of the presentation of what these patients look like. Now, how are we going to intervene as a nurse? As a nurse, because we understand that there's vegetative growth on the valves of the heart, which do not have a robust vascular system feeding the leaflets of the valves, and because of that, it takes a really long time to treat this with IV or intravenous antibiotics, what we can do as a nurse is we are going to monitor these patients for the breakings of the emboli from those vegetative growths. And if you think about all of the systems that are affected, right, the heart, first and foremost, we're going to watch for signs of heart failure. And then if we think about the spleen, because their spleen is going to get much larger, well, if an emboli breaks away and it lodges itself in the spleen and we get a splenic emboli, we can see these patients that will present with sudden abdominal pain and it radiates to the left shoulder and they'll have that presence of rebound abdominal tenderness on Palpation. We're also going to watch for, say, kidney emboli. So, renal emboli, that's going to manifest as flank pain radiating down maybe to the groin. They might have hematuria, that blood in the urine. And then we're going to also monitor for. You know, a stroke, if a piece of the emboli of the vegetative growth breaks off and goes straight up to the brain, watch for confusion or that aphasia or dysphasia, which may indicate that that is what is occurring. And then even PEs where you have to worry about pulmonary emboli. Um, And this that will look like pleuritic chest pain, dyspnea, and cough. Basically, if you take an emboli and you just put it in any organ, how is that going to manifest? That's what we're watching for because that is what has the potential to occur with someone who has infective endocarditis and they've got vegetative growth on a valve that has been compromised otherwise from a bacterium that came in from the outside world. And then we think more broadly, right? So we need to assess the skin and we need to look for the petechiae, whether that's on the skin, in the mucous membranes, even the conjunctiva. And you're going to look at the nail beds for splinter hemorrhages. And while you're at the nail beds, you might as well just check to see if they've got clubbing of their fingers and then look at their feet and look for the Osler's nodes on the pads of the fingers, the hands, the toes. Do all of that Um, and then you're going to get blood cultures and we're going to administer antibiotics. Now make note, I did say obtain blood cultures before you administer antibiotics. If you think any of your patients ever have some sort of infection brewing that you would need to culture their blood for, you absolutely, number one thing is should always make sure you're getting your blood cultures before you're giving any antibiotics. And then once that has been done, you give antibiotics. And these are patients that don't just get one round of antibiotic. No, they will get an extended period of time of antibiotics because again in the heart those valves do not have vascular circulation it's odd because they're literally inside the heart but they don't have a robust vasculature within its own leaflets but if you were to look at the valves especially on a dissected heart they are bright white they don't look red and meaty like muscle because they don't have the vasculature feeding it so it's not like getting an infection in your toe where if you give an IV antibiotic or some sort of systemic antibiotic the antibiotic travels through the vascular system directly to the cells that need it that are fighting the infection that is not the case in endocarditis because the valves do not have a blood supply so we basically saturate the blood with antibiotics so as it passes over those infected regions we are treating it that way now, the antibiotic regimen for, in, for endocarditis, it's straight up no joke. These patients are typically on some sort of IV antibiotics for a really long period of time. We're talking four to six weeks at a minimum. And often, if they don't need to stay in hospital, these patients will get a peripherally inserted central catheter, aka a PIC, in one of their arms, and they will go home with that in order to ke- continue getting their IV antibiotics, whether that's vancomycin or rocephin or whatever antibiotic they've been prescribed. They need to be on super long-term antibiotics. So that's what we do for interventions. Now, how are, what are we going to do to evaluate and educate whether or not what we've done has worked? Well, when we evaluate, they will either, A, if they were symptomatic with fevers and things like that, we, we should... Not no longer have a fever, like that 's fairly self explanatory, um, but when we go to educate them, especially if they 're going home with a pick, we need to take into consideration that they 're going to have to now maintain. Uh, aseptic technique for setup and administration of IV antibiotics if they don't have a home health nurse coming in to do that. And so these antibiotics have to be on a schedule. They're also going to need to monitor these PIC sites for signs of infection and then immediately report to their PCP or their cardiologist if they think they're getting an infection. We also teach these patients to take their temperature daily for up to six weeks and to report a fever. This is just kind of oftentimes um, a baseline reading where we want to see if they go up or down in their fever. And then, because we know that the oral cavity has such a high propensity of allowing bacteria in, and it's so closely associated with infections and the heart, that we want to really encourage these patients to do appropriate oral hygiene at least twice a day with a soft bristled toothbrush, and then to rinse super well. Think to yourself, do you actually brush your teeth two times a day? Okay. Okay. Now we need to reinforce that with our patients. And then we should even be t- um, telling them to avoid using oral irrigation devices. So those water picks. We, we should tell them not to use those because we don't want them to push bacteria further into the oral cavities and do things like that. The, one of the key things with these sorts of patients is if they have had endocarditis, They need to tell their providers before they go to get dental work done because they need to be put on prophylactic antibiotics to prevent problems from occurring. Okay, that is a hotbed question in nursing school, is someone with a history of endocarditis is going in for dental work, like what is one key nursing priority that you need to take into consideration? Newsflash, it's antibiotics, because we want to prevent any sort of further infection because we know prior history of endocarditis places them at higher risk of developing it again. The only other thing that we would need to consider is that these patients might need a valve replacement following antibiotic treatment, depending on how the their valves fare with everything. But again, if we think about that and they have an artificial valve now, that places them at higher risk for endocarditis. So the same education rules still apply of, you know, really good oral hygiene. If they do get antibiotics, they need to complete all of their antibiotics and not just do a short run of the course and be like, meh, I feel better. No, don't let them do that. And then they really need to inform their healthcare providers about their history. If they've had infective endocarditis, if they go to get dental work, like really getting those prophylactic antibiotics. That's all I've got so far for endocarditis. Go forth and keep on learning.